take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. I often have these experiences where I feel like nothing's going right. And there's a series of unfortunate events that lead me to this conclusion, so much so that I half-heartedly ask, has somebody cursed this car that I've been working on? That was my experience with the 1969 Volkswagen Beetle that I owned years ago. I loved driving that car. I loved working on it. But often, I would wonder, what am I doing? I can't fix this car. I one time reassembled the axle after performing a piece of routine maintenance, and I took it for a test drive, and I got less than a mile away from my house, and the wheel literally went from being vertical to horizontal, All right, and so I whipped it off the side of the road quickly, and I'm looking at it thinking, what did I do wrong, and, ha- and why do these bad things keep happening to all of my attempts to fix this vehicle? We're going the wrong direction here, and whether you work on cars or you have these kinds of experiences at work or in your own life, they, they're common, aren't they, uh, where we feel cursed. In fact, in Major League Baseball, there are these very humorous, to me, articles and traditions <clears throat> and myths. It's almost an entire mythology. Uh, for example, uh, the Chicago Cubs, they did not win a World Series between the years of 1908 and 2016, and they called it the Curse of the Bambino. It was after Babe Ruth had left, and it, they went all these years with no World Series championships, and everybody said, you are cursed. And it happened, too, to the Boston Red Sox for 86 straight years. Uh, They were the ones that Babe Ruth left, I I believe, and uh, for 86 years they had this curse. And so there's all this folklore surrounding the curse in Major League Baseball. And some fans truly believe in the curse, and some fans find it to be somewhat humorous. But this story in Mark chapter 11 is a very serious kind of a curse. It's a curse that comes from the Lord of the universe, Jesus. It's a story of Jesus cursing a fig tree and symbolically transitioning then to curse and bring about judgment on people who rejected God. So this story here starts with this curse And thankfully for us, there's good news as well because it ends with a promise for confidence. And the question before us is very simple. This is where the text will lead us to and where I will conclude. Is, are you living under the curse of Christ or are you living in the confidence of Christ? When I talk about confidence, as we'll see from this text, I'm not talking about the spirit of American independence that we can accomplish anything if we really set our mind to it. I'm not talking about the confidence that Mark Twain spoke about, which unfortunately is too common. He says about confidence, all you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. You won't even know how much of a failure you are. No, not self-confidence that's blind And self-defined. Confidence like Hebrews 11.1 speaks about. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. 
My hope is that each person here listening to the word of God preached, my hope is that each person embraces this kind of faith that the Bible talks about, the kind of faith that Martin Luther summarized in this way. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Very simply, that's our big idea today, that Jesus' curse, his judgment, remains on the hypocritical, the superficially religious, who are really pursuing selfish gain. But Jesus grants confident faith to those who genuinely trust in God. As we on-ramp to this story of the fig tree and the curse, and then Jesus cleansing the temple and pronouncing a curse and judgment on the people that reject him, I want to take a few minutes to on-ramp you to the story Because the context, those verses especially before but also after, make all the difference in the world for whether you'll truly understand what God intends and how Mark intended his gospel of Jesus to be read. So as Pastor Brian mentioned earlier on in this, uh, a few months ago, in this text, you read and studied and heard a sermon on Mark 11, the triumphal entry of Jesus. This story of Mark is the fastest-paced gospel of the four gospels. It's full of Jesus' life and teaching, but the main point of the book of Mark is in the theme verse of Mark 10.45, where Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the big idea, and so as Mark goes bang, bang from this story to that story, Jesus heals this person, Jesus heals that person, Jesus reverses the fallenness of nature, Jesus raises the dead, Jesus liberates the demon-possessed. The story turns in chapter 11 to his triumphal entry into the city, but it turns also to the climax of him being the ransom for many. Because he's on his way to the cross, which was the purpose for which he came, to die in that cross in our place, all who would repent, all who would believe in him. He died in our place so that we would have life. That's how he ransoms us. So the suffering servant is the key angle or portrait of identity of Jesus in the gospel according to Mark. And today's text shifts Jesus' story one step closer to that climax and culmination of his ministry, his death on the cross. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, he enters into the city of Jerusalem in which he will be killed. Now, strangely, he enters into the city of Jerusalem to the cheers, the applause, the acclaim of the people. And these people, it's strange that they would do this because these people are the same ones who are about to kill him. They have a twisted view of Jesus and his mission, very distorted. Have you ever been to a birthday party? I hope you have not. I've not been to one of these. A birthday party where you go and you exchange gifts, you have a great meal, and you sing happy birthday and blow out candles, and then after you do all of that, you eat cake and ice cream, you murder the birthday boy. Hope you haven't been to one of those. Isn't that strange? In fact, until I read this story of Jesus, that thought never even crossed my mind. But that's what's happening here. They welcome Jesus to the city, and then they immediately, this Passion Week, as we call it, they immediately, within a couple of days, are turning on Jesus to the point of his death on the cross. Well, 
this story, beginning in verse 12, picks up with these words on the following day. So his triumphal entry was on Sunday. He comes into their acclaim. And the very next day, this story picks up. Now, essentially what happens here is Jesus walks by a tree with no figs on it, and he curses it. Some of you may think, well, it wasn't even the season for figs. Poor tree. What did that tree do to deserve Jesus' curse? We'll talk about that in a moment. And then meanwhile, they, on their way to the temple for sacrifices, uh, he sees things that anger him, and so Jesus cleanses the temple. He turns over tables, he kicks people out, he lectures them, gives them a sermon, righteous indignation on display here. And then the very next morning, Tuesday morning, in this text, Peter says, hey Jesus, look, that fig tree that you cursed yesterday, it's dead to the root. Then Jesus explains why he cursed the tree and what his disciples ought to do about it. And then in the end, he warns them about self-serving religiosity. He warns them at the curse that comes as a result of that. But then he instructs them on how to live an authentic life confident before the face of God. So that's where we're headed. This story begins with a fig tree. Sandwiched in the middle is Jesus cleansing the temple. And then Jesus comes back to the fig tree. This is a sandwich for obvious reasons. Two slices of bread and then half a pound of roast beef in the middle. And this sandwich is one of nine sandwiches in the gospel according to Mark. The reason I share all this context is we're going to see a verse in this story that a lot of people misunderstand today. But when you see it in the context of the whole, it makes perfect sense for what Jesus intended. So that's where we're headed. Let's read this text together and then we'll make some observations Talk about the meaning, but also examine ourselves and apply it in our lives. So I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
Let's pray. God, take your word that we have read and use it as you promised by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform our minds and our hearts, to illuminate us so that we might see and behold you in your glory and we might change as a result of your work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Some people mistakenly see the miracles of Jesus as magic tricks that kind of authenticate his authenticity, validate his message. There have been many times in my life where I've read those parables that way or those miracles that way. Jesus was not here simply doing a magic trick that demonstrated his authority over nature, although that's true. His miracles always had multiple purposes. He was always accomplishing a variety of things when he did a miracle like this, but they were never random. This was no random fig tree. It was no random set of examples. Uh, Jesus was always demonstrating his authority. He was always reversing the curse of sin. With his miracles, he was always affirming the physical world. He was always affirming and illustrating what is good, true, and beautiful. And he was always modeling submission to the Father. But in Jesus' miracles, we find a specific example here where Jesus used his miracle to teach something. So in addition to all the many reasons for Jesus' miracles, and this one is a lesson. And we know that because when he comes to the end, he says, this is why I cursed the fig tree. It's a lesson. Now that helps us understand a little bit here because if you were just to read this on its own, you would say, well, Jesus, why are you killing the trees? We need trees. And personally, I like trees. I follow this group called Big Trees Ohio. And it's a little nerdy, I know, but they measure the biggest trees in the state of Ohio. And it's kind of neat, I think. When our family went to the bronze house and I saw his tree in his yard, I said, I need to measure that tree. And I did. I measured that tree. And it's 180 or 200 years old. Like, man, that is an impressive tree. I love your tree. And so my thought, if this is in isolation, I say, well, Jesus, why are you going to kill a tree? At the very least, it's creating oxygen for us, right? Uh, even if it has no figs, but it wasn't even fig season, it says. So why would Jesus do this? Well, it was for the sake of a lesson. And by the way, small side note, Jesus is the Lord and creator of the universe, and he always uses everything exactly the way that he wants. And he has every right to do so, doesn't he? And he's always right in doing so. But in this case, we see a clear reason why he's going to do this. Now, there's significance to the fact there's a fig tree. There's a long historical backdrop to the fig tree in the Old Testament. There are many references, very clear. With more time, I would demonstrate it to you, but I'll summarize instead. In the Old Testament, the fig tree always represented, in teaching and in prophetic utterances, it always represented the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And there were many prophetic utterances in the Old Testament about the fig tree, Israel, not bearing fruit, and thus bringing God's judgment was the next step. So if you want to do more study on this, you'll see it in Jeremiah 24, Hosea 9.10, Jeremiah 8.13. Each of these things teaches us, though, that Jesus' original hearers and the recipients of the Gospel of Mark would have understood, oh, fig tree, we know what that means. That means the Israelites, the Hebrew people. So the fig tree symbolizing Israel, God's chosen people, is not only finding its root and ground in the Old Testament backdrop here, but it's also borne out in the way that this story unfolds. 
So verse 14 is very clear to tell us that Jesus said this loudly so that all the disciples heard it. And that tips us off that there's more coming about this. And that's how we know that Peter remembers it later. So let's look at verse 15. After Jesus curses the fig tree, and that's the first slice of bread in our sandwich here. Now we get to the central part of the sandwich. And we see this further demonstrated, namely that the fig tree symbolizes and represents the nation of Israel because Jesus enters the temple in Jerusalem in verse 15. This was just the normal rhythm of life for the Jewish people at this time. They were on their way during Passover week to offer sacrifices in the temple in order to be obedient to God and express faith that God would remit their sins He would wash away their sins if they would act in obedience to him and offer sacrifices. And there were a lot of rules and regulations around this. But so you know the story of what's happening here. They're on their way to the temple to do that, along with many, many other people. And as they're on their way there, and as they arrive here at the temple, that's where the story really takes the sharp turn. You see, we would expect them to go and to buy the animals and to go offer the animals and to go through all the process and the rituals. But instead of that, Jesus does not like what he sees. It tells us in verse 15 that he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. We're going to come back to that in a moment. There's a second thing he did I want you to note. And that is he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So when people came from out of of state and they had a different form of currency, they had to exchange it for Jewish currency... There were specific regulations on the temple tax, and you had to give it in Jewish coin. And so what happens, though, here is that these money changers were changing money here in the temple, and they were doing so in an exploitative manner, taking advantage of these travelers and foreigners who had come from afar, knowing they had no other option but to get the rate that they gave them. And then there's a third thing that Jesus does here, in addition to exposing their irreverent behavior with those who sold and bought, overturning the tables. Thirdly, in verse 16, it tells us that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And I think that the rule that Jesus was trying to rebuke them about should be clear to you. There were laws in place for where you could walk, and there were people just taking shortcuts. It's like we all did when we were kids, going under the red curtain thing at the movie theater in the line, you know, dipping underneath that, breaking the rules, except this wasn't just for practical reasons of keeping everybody in an orderly line. These rules were there because of the reverence associated with the temple and intended by the building of the temple, by the Lord himself. There were specific places where certain kinds of people could go. There was a holy spot for priests only. There were outer courts. There were really outer courts. There were places where only Jews could go. There was a large Gentile court. And that's where this farmer's market had sprung up, in the Gentile court, where they were buying and trading and selling. So if you could imagine, you're supposed to go into a holy and reverent place, the temple was intended for, but instead you see all this busy commerce, and you see people cheating other people, and you see people taking advantage of the poor. So these three things that Jesus does here are incredibly significant And it's not just a random act of anger, righteous as it is. It was very specific that Jesus was pushing back against the fact that they had 
embraced practices that disrespected God and his plan for their lives. The tragedy here is that it had become a marketplace. One commentator, William Hendrickson, notes three things about the temple that are helpful for us to understand why this is such a tragedy, that it would become a place, a farmer's market. Number one, Hendrickson says the temple was vast. There's a historian, Josephus, uh, talked about the stones being 67 feet long. I'm not great with distances, but that would be almost the width of this auditorium, I think. Maybe a little shorter. (laughs) But a huge stone, 67 feet long by 5 feet wide and 6 feet tall. And this temple was built of these stones, so it was vast. And Hendrickson notes, its vastness, by reminding man of his littleness, inspires awe. Now, I don't know about you, but I have that feeling when I come into your worship space here. The high ceilings, the stained glass windows. And there's a lot of architecture that was built and designed with this in mind. That when you come in, you feel the bigness of God and the littleness of you. This temple was built with that in mind. Secondly, its beauty, the exterior of the building lacked nothing, Hendrickson says, that could astonish either the soul or the eyes. For being covered on every side with massive plates of gold, the sun had not sooner risen than it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it were forced to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. This beautiful space was meant to cultivate a spirit of worship to the one from whom all beauty comes, God himself. The temple, thirdly, in addition to being vast and beautiful, the third thing about the temple, Hendrickson notes, is that its purpose was indeed explicitly to be a house of worship. And Jesus says in this text to them in his teaching, my house shall be called a house of prayer. A house where we commune with the creator of the universe. A place where we demonstrate reverence, respect, awe, and ascribe worth to the one who's worthy of our worship. But instead, in the marketplace of God's temple, business was booming. And religious leaders were exploiting the common person so that they could pad their pockets and they could expand their reach and influence and power in very unhealthy ways. I mean, think about it. The merchants were here selling leader-approved animals, only those that the religious leaders would affirm. They paid a hefty fee for their spot in the market. So there were markups, overpriced animals, money changers, fleecing travelers. But as the Lord of the temple, Jesus was not going to permit nor tolerate this thievery. He declared that this form of religion was unacceptable before God. God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, not in selfish gain and trickery. This story of Jesus confronting their false worship is a story that has a lot of meaning and significance for us today. It's a story of meaning and significance. We've got to ask ourselves that question, am I masquerading as one who worships the one true living God But in reality, I have selfish gain as my motive. Jesus' righteous indignation doesn't just come to the people of this time and day. As the Lord of creation and the Lord of history, Jesus 
is moving history toward a culmination and a reckoning for each one of us. Now there are some, and perhaps this is you, you're dismissive of this story, you're dismissive of this because you're like, well, Jesus was just an angry psychopath. He comes in, he sees some things he doesn't like, so he rips the place apart. Well, this is indeed the very argument that Bertrand Russell, a famous skeptic of Christianity, made. In his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, he concludes, Jesus is just full of, quote, vindictive fury. Because reportedly, rumors, myth had it, that when Jesus was a child, this is not in the scripture, this is a rumor and a myth, that when Jesus was a child, he grew angry with a couple of children who were bullying him, and he cursed them, and they died. There was a teacher who confronted Jesus about a certain set of teaching, and rumor has it that he cursed the teacher, and they died. So in this kind of a context, skeptics like Bertrand Russell, who don't value the authority and inspiration of God's word, put this story alongside of those story and just say, Jesus just had an anger problem. I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to submit to him. Well, that's part of the primary choice we each have to make each day of our lives. Will we each one submit to the truthfulness of God's word and its authority in our lives? Or will we be dismissive of Jesus as the Lord of creation, the Lord of the temple, the Lord of our lives, simply because we find a convenient reason and excuse to discount what he has to say? Will you believe the words of Christ? Jesus is indeed a jealous God. And in this case, we see it illustrated that he is indeed a jealous, righteously angry Lord. You see, rather than these people who are outwardly religious, rather than them worshiping God, it becomes clear to us that they indeed were doing the opposite of God's word. They had turned this into a den of thieves. Or verse 17, my translation says, a den of robbers. Rather than helping the poor, helping the vulnerable, offer acceptable sacrifices to God, they took advantage of them by ripping them off. They've moved the temple's purpose from a consecrated place to a commercial place. And religion had become an avenue of personal profit. I think the warning that this is to each of us is that though our we, we no longer have the temple as it was in this day. In fact, it was destroyed not too long after this. But the way that this applies in our lives is we've got to ask that question about our religious practices. You see, by most appearances, people were fully engaged in this. In fact, Jesus' criticism, you might notice in verse 15, his criticism wasn't just for those who were exploiting the poor it says he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. In other words, those who participated in this distorted religious set of religious practices also received the curse of Christ. So where it comes to bear in our lives is we've got to ask ourselves, do our religious practices reflect God's instructions for how we are to worship him? Or do we let our preferences stand in the way? Do we let our conveniences overshadow God's clear word? Do we let 
even for some preachers, I'll pick on us, for some preachers, they take advantage of their status with the church to exploit the church and other donors for financial gain. Some of you perhaps saw the, the video that went viral a couple of weeks ago about the guy that while he was in the, on the stage in the pulpit, uh, they, was, they were robbed at gunpoint, right? And there's, this story has a long, lot longer version than the one I'm telling you. But my first thought, response to that story that went viral was not so much some of the more common questions. My first thought was, how did that guy get so rich? <laughs> I mean, this preacher, I think he had close to a million dollars worth in jewelry on his person while he was preaching. Now, I know when I came in, Mike Squire and Cameron Braun were both really impressed with my threads. But I th I'm pretty sure I'm all in up here for under 200 bucks. Pretty sure. But many preachers do indeed, in some streams of so-called Christianity, this text comes and confronts them directly. I think that's the easy application that we can make is to say, yeah, these preachers ought not to exploit people so that they can buy their own personal jets and a million dollars in jewelry and all the list goes on. That's the easy target. I started with that one on purpose. The harder target is me, and the harder target is you. But that's the target God calls each of us to take. When Scripture comes to us, the temptation always is for us to look to the person to our left or to our right, or the one sitting in front of you here in this auditorium this morning. But I would ask you to search your heart and pray, God, would you help me? Would you search my heart, God, and reveal to me any wicked way in me? Are there ways that you view God as someone who's just going to make your life comfortable or convenient or some other avenue of personal gain? It's the what's in it for me kind of an approach to Christianity. But as Jesus demonstrates here, the what's in it for me kind of Christianity, that version is not a version of Christianity. There are not versions of Christianity. There is Christianity and there are perversions. And Jesus' act here is actually an act of mercy alongside of his judgment. It's certainly judgment. As he put together that whip and he cast them out and turned over their tables, some people would see this in isolation as a very angry moment, but it was also merciful. If you were one of these money changers, wouldn't you want to know you were in the wrong? And that's why the very best thing you can do is pray and ask God to lay your heart bare. The very best thing you can do is say, God, in your mercy, would you confront me and my disillusionment. God, would you confront me in the ways that I have gotten it wrong and I've just sought you, Lord, for what you can do for me. Oh, Lord, please help me find the right spouse. Oh, Lord, please help me get the right job. Oh, Lord, please help me make more money at my job. Oh, Lord, please give me this promotion. Oh, Lord, please help me raise my kids in, in such a way that they don't embarrass me too badly. That's just one of the prayers I pray sometimes. <laughs> oh, Lord, I need you for all these things. That's the same kind of false religion that these religious leaders were guilty of, that Jesus confronted. Masquerading as sincere people worshiping God, they were really just in it for themselves. Well, the story continues and ends with the sandwich. Quickly, though, 18 and 19... All of these things, it shouldn't surprise you, right? That We're on the right track here of meaning and understanding the text because look at verse 18 and 19. 
the response of the religious leaders who had set up this system where they're getting rich and powerful and all the rest. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. Right? This is how he gets to the cross, practically speaking. He does all these kinds of things, gets everybody stirred up and angry, and they're like, all right, we're going to kill you. Because it says they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Well, of course, the Lord of the universe should astonish people with his teaching. And 19 says, when the evening came, they went out of the city. Now, here's where the remainder of the meaning of the text becomes clear because Jesus clearly states it. And then he gives us hope. As they passed by in the morning, this would be Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered, because you, you look back up at 14, remember his disciples heard it. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, I don't think Peter was really surprised. I, I don't think that Peter was like, wow, look, it actually happened. Now, Peter had seen so many miracles. I think he was saying, with, especially with this term rabbi, which means teacher, it was a term of respect, endearment, and submission. I think Peter was saying, Jesus, talk a little bit more about this. You cursed the tree, now it's dead the very next day. Let's, let's talk. Jesus says in verse 22, have faith in God. Now this startled me when I first read it. I don't know if that surprises you at all. I would have thought that Jesus would have said something else about the tree. Very simply, he gives them an imperative, a command, have faith in God. The reason Jesus says have faith in God is because he's just shown them and demonstrated to them that those who don't have faith in God, they're posturing for money, popularity, or power. Those people who don't have true, sincere faith in God receive the curse of Christ. But now he's telling his disciples, have faith in God, and having faith in God leads to a confident life with abundant joy. Look at this, in verse 23. He explains his command to have faith in God. He says in 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, pause for a moment. It would have been clear, I think, to his readers, and theologians, commentators, scholars agree on this point, that they would have naturally thought of this mountain Jesus is referring to as the Mount of Olives. They would have naturally thought, well, if they were thinking of purely a physical way, they would have thought, okay, if I want to move the Mount of Olives and throw it into the sea, I can do that if I just pray for it. If they would have taken a wooden, literal approach to understanding Jesus' words, I think they would have known, though, that Jesus was, in, in, was intending this symbolically. Jesus was saying, faith, uh, uh, mountain-moving faith is the kind of faith you should have, and it's the kind of thing that says, Sincere worshipers of God see that God is not bound by our limitations. He doesn't have in mind our expectations for life of money, exploitation of others, power, etc. But it's a much more grand view and experience of life. He nearly repeats this expression in the very next verse. It's almost mirrored in its composition. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now again, when we rip that verse out of the context of this story, and we put it on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker, 
whatever you want, then, man, you, if you only listen to this part, you got to hear this. Because you can't walk away thinking, wow, I'm going to pray that I win the lottery. And, of course, especially when I was a kid, I thought, well, what if two people prayed that they win the lottery at exactly the same time? What's God going to do? It's like when we pray for the, the Cincinnati Reds to win and when they're playing the Cardinals and we're praying for the Cardinals to win, right? Whose prayer is God going to answer? <laughs> well, clearly that's not what Jesus is getting at. That Well, you just dream up a dream and I'll make it true. In the context here, he's saying... When you have confidence in God, you acknowledge that God exists and you believe in him and you trust in him that he is perfect and his ways are perfect, then our prayers become like Jesus' prayers. That is, our prayers are always submitted to the will of the Father and they always go toward the goal of God's glory. So if you're here and you think, well, I can just pray for a more comfortable life. I'll pray that no suffering comes into my life. I can pray for more money. I can pray for... Those aren't the kind of prayers. James says... You don't have because you don't ask. And sometimes you ask God for things, but you don't get it because you ask amiss, is his word. You're asking, you're praying for something that's outside of God's best for your life. So pursue God, be, submit your life to Christ, and then whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So there's this, there, I really see this grammatically and also theologically when you just look at the flow of argument. I see both of these two, these two things here. I see both the praying and the forgiving in verse 25. I see them as descriptions of how to live out that imperative, have faith in God. So the command is have faith in God. How do you do that? What does that look like? Number one, pray. There's a vertical restoration with our relationship with God. So we're talking to God. We're praying with him, to him. We're submitting to him. But then secondly, look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. So in addition to that vertical restoration with the Lord, there's a horizontal connectivity that the Lord brings about in our lives when we have faith in him. When we believe God, he restores relationships around us in a way that we don't have to hold grudges against one another. When somebody wrongs you, that, that's forgiveness, right? It's, it's entrusting the results of injustice to the Lord. It's, it's clearing the record of those who have wronged us, not holding a grudge against them, believing that vengeance is mine. There's a verse about that. God says, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, I will repay. When you believe that, when you believe that God sees everything, knows everything, and judges justly, when you know those things, and you really believe them, if you believe them, you will no longer be holding grudges against people who have wronged you. You release them, saying... God will sort this out. I forgive you, and in the ways in which you've wronged me, I release you from that debt that you owed me to make it right. So forgiveness is an extension and expression of a life acknowledging God's presence and living before the face of God and who he is and all of his pure justice and all of his holiness, that he will make it all right. This is pure religion. This is what it looks like to reject false religion that these religious leaders had cultivated for their own gain. And then this, Jesus says, is confident living, faith-filled living, surrendering your life to the very hand of God. So friend, there are two ways to live. There's the way to live where you let subtle 
desires of your heart creep into your life in such a way that you begin living for yourself rather than for the Lord. And they demonstrate themselves not only in formal worship when we gather with God's people, but they also demonstrate themselves on Monday morning at work, and Tuesday at school, and in your home with your family. Is your life surrendered to the cause of making Jesus famous, of leading people to know him, see him for who he is, and lead them also to follow him? There are so many subtle temptations to draw us away from that. But the warning for you, if that's the case, the warning is that the curse of Christ comes upon you. But for those who persevere, for those who continue on living a confident, faith-filled life, knowing God is supreme, there is a blessed way to live in the confidence of Christ. The way to live is in a spirit of prayer that magnifies the power of God and a spirit of forgiveness that reveals the presence of grace. When we have received the grace of God, we evidence that by extending it to others. I'm so encouraged that Veritas has a time and service for you call the pastoral prayer. That's one of those subtle ways that we come to church and we say, well, that's just a boring part or something like that. Wish that could be shorter. That's too long. No, in truth, we can make it longer, can't we? We should spend time in prayer. Because whether your curses in life or perceived curses have led to one bad thing after another, or whether it's truly a sign that Jesus is cursed on your life, I want to lead us in a time of prayer in which we can repent from the ways in which we have falsely posed in a way to procure God's favor and to where we can humbly receive the grace of the Lord in our lives. Let's pray together to that end. Lord Jesus, you have put before us two ways to live. One way of being a tree full of leaves but void of fruit, void of the fruits of righteousness. And my prayer for each of us is that we would see that fruitless life as an empty life before it's too late. My prayer is that we would see that as a way of life that robs you of the glory you deserve. Help us, Lord, instead of that, to live in such a way that rather than being trees full of leaves but no fruit, would you, by your grace, grant us the fruit of a forgiving heart and grant us the grace of a prayer-filled life as demonstrations that we place our lives in your hand, that we have faith and confident assurance in you and who you are, not even in our faith in you. Our faith is in you. And may the strength of the object of our faith, you, carry us until you call us home. We pray these things in Christ's name.
Amen.